Good day and welcome to Minnesota Masonic Histories and Mysteries, where we will explore the origins of all things Masonic in our great state and perhaps uncover a few mysteries of our ancient craft along the way. We are back again at uh, the annual communication, the 169th annual communication of the Grand Lodge of Minnesota. And uh, have with us uh, now a person who I've been uh, meaning to visit with because I just find him intriguing. Uh, for starters, I'm, I'm, I've been always drawn to your voice. I think you've got a great voice for radio, so I wanted to hear how you sounded on here. But Chris Wendover, Chris is, uh, has recently been, or, or, or you will be today. Today, yeah. Today you'll become the area deputy for the Metro East uh, Lodges. And uh, Roger McNear is uh, helping out once again, and he is uh, a member of one of those Metro East Lodges. Yeah, right? District 8 Metro East, you know. We've got Helios, Jasper, Moore, and Fraternal, and we seem to make most everything, don't we, Chris? Yeah. So, Chris, before I get to the, 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 the real reason that I wanted to visit with you, I am curious about your, uh, your Masonic history. What was it that compelled you to become a Mason? When did you become a Mason? Sure. So uh, I, I joined the lodge in 2010. Okay. Uh, YZ Lodge number 205 is my mother lodge. Uh, essentially, I have a deep Masonic lineage, a family going all the way back to, I have newspaper articles from 1832, oh, wow. I think 1829, uh, of a gentleman by the name of Fred E. Bird uh, joined, uh, I think it's Deposit Lodge, and there's a newspaper article. They threw a huge party, even in the newspaper, it lists all the people that were there. And so uh, the Bird family ends up you know, marrying into the Wendover family. Uh, I had uh, my uh, great uncle Dave Bird uh, in New York just recently passed away three or four years ago. I went to his Masonic funeral. Okay. And my cousin is the only other Mason left in New York. Really? Out there, yeah. So just me and him. My dad never joined the lodge, and he just breaks this huge lineage of. Of but you Mason. got us back on track. We got us back on track, yeah. Now, are, do you have children? I do. Uh, so I have a, a 12-year-old daughter and a 10-year-old son. Okay. There so, you got an opportunity to bring that 10-year-old boy into first a Demolay chapter and then a lodge. Absolutely. He's always selling Demolay. Always, you know. well, always I'm selling. A se- I'm a senior Demolay. Well, a super senior, actually. A super senior and a <laughs> Legion of Honor Demolay. So. I got some hope, though. My dad, uh, my, my dad's retiring into Ohio, West Union, Ohio. Okay. There's a lodge out there. So when I go out there to visit in Jalaj, I'm going to go connect with the lodge and oh, see what good. happens. I'm trying. That'd be good. cool. Did you grow up in Ohio? No. So actually, I was born in Germany, oh. uh, Nuremberg, Germany. My dad's military. Gotcha. Uh, my mom's not German. She's a New Yorker as well. Uh, and then uh, we moved to Louisiana, Colorado. I joined the National Guard, Colorado National Guard, and then I transferred out to Minnesota where okay. I finished my, I did 12 years okay. as a helicopter electrician. So. Really? Yeah. Um, so one of the things that I find unique about masonry is people really don't know what other masons do for a living. Right. Yeah. You know, when you're in the fundraising business, there's a certain amount of profiling that needs to be done yes. to, to be efficient in the work that you do. And when I first started working for, for the Masonic Cancer Center Fund yeah. 17 years ago, the typical question that you ask of board members is, Who's got the money? You know, who's, who are, you know, who are the, who, who have the jobs? You know, who are the people? Nobody knows. Nobody knows. It's not important. And that's what, you know, that's one of the beauties of masonry. But from a fundraising guy's perspective, it's one of the, uh, 
the frustrating things. Was it that different fundraising for the Boy Scouts? Absolutely. Was everybody it? knew who what everybody did. There's Interesting. just you know, for the most part. Now, I I don't even know how I discovered this, but I discovered that you have an interesting occupation. I find it very interesting. Yes. Tell us about what you do when you're not being a Mason, Chris. Uh, I'm a corrections officer in a women's prison. In a women's prison. Can you imagine that? Yeah, but I think you need to restate that question because Chris shows his Masonic tenants as a correction officer too. I'm okay, sure. Okay, so yeah, it's, it, it, it's with them all the time. Life. How about in addition to your Masonic? Is that a, that, is that's, that's better? That's better, better stated. So I've uh, I've been a correction officer for almost seventeen and a half years, and I'm thirty nine. So so your whole career. Yeah, I kind of grew up in a prison. I mean, grew up in a prison. Yeah. And which uh, are you at liberty to say which prison? Oh yeah, Women's Shakopee Prison. Women's uh, Shakopee. So there's two women's prisons in Minnesota. Uh, one is a federal. It's Wasika. Uh, they they used to be men. I think somewhere's around 2008 through 10. Somewhere's around there. They changed to women. So you have the federal prison, and then the only state prison for women is Shakopee. And, and I, I would imagine that's an interesting. Day at work. Oh yeah. So, uh, what, I mean, what does it? What does that entail? So it all kind of depends on where you work in the facility. I, I would say outside of like solitary confinement or something like that, it's kind of day to day. The inmates wake up, they go to work, they go eat, they go to programming. You know, just kind of whatever their day to day is. So kind of during the afternoon and whatnot, they they kind of keep busy. We put them out in the courtyard. They walk around the courtyard. They have games, volleyball, stuff like that. So, what what kind of crimes have these women committed? So, everything from uh, I would say DUI and stuff like that. Uh, you know, federal uh, felony convictions to murder, death, kill. Uh, so, we have pedophiles just like any other prison does. We have rapists just like any other prison does. Really, just not as many. I mean, so we used to have prior to COVID. We had about 648 offenders. Holy and cow. Now we're down to, I think, above 400. Okay. Somewhere's around there. You kind of look where, where did the 250 go? So they released them when COVID happened. Really? Uh, yeah. So I think I think Minnesota released them. So COVID wasn't tough on everybody. No. <laughs> so what ended up happening, I think Minnesota released about 2,000 to 2,500 offenders uh, when co- as COVID was kind of going through. People who they determined were... I guess, uh, susceptible to major illness from COVID, and they released them from prison. Uh, uh, now, my understanding is violent offenders weren't released. It was kind of, you know, minor minor penalties or whatnot like that. So I couldn't tell you exactly how that went down because I don't have anything to do with it. What yeah. kind of recidivism do you see from those 2,000-plus? I wouldn't know. I mean, yeah, it, I would have no way of tracking that. And maybe my warden or something like that might know. But even then, I, I can tell you that Minnesota has a very high uh, return rate to prison, especially with the women. So I can really? tell you that. A lot yeah. of them, I've had, I've had women actually come up to me and, and, oh, my gosh, that's you, Officer Wendover? I remember when you started, you know, 15 years ago, you were just a kid. And I'm like, I have no idea who you are. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. So I... <clears throat> You know, is it like the movies? I mean, are there people that like you as an as an officer there? You know, get along with really well, and they're what do they call them? Like uh, uh, trustees. Trustees is that or is that just on TV? No, that's just on TV. I mean, there's uh, to be most honest with you, I don't have an issue with many of the the people in prison. I, I mean, it, they're they're human. 
Right? Yep. So day-to-day interaction, good morning, how are you? Very cordial. Um, you know, do we, we do have violent offenders, so on occasion you'll see that happen. Okay. Um, we don't generally see a lot of staff assaults at the, the prison in Shakopee. and generally see that a lot in the men's facilities. Uh, well, it does happen. Um, I have, uh, I've, I've had MH try to assault me, but not necessarily. I was the target. I was going in, breaking up a fight oh, or okay. something like that. Okay. Uh, so that's fascinating. I mean, when you, when you've been told not to physically engage with a female or a woman your whole life and just, you know, treat women with respect and all that. And the next thing you know, you got a riot shield and you're about to do a cell entry, right. you know, things can change and that does happen. Um, so that's kind of how it works. When I was in college, I worked at uh, St. Joe's Hospital, and I was uh, a nursing assistant on on the psychiatric, the closed psychiatric unit. And we would occasionally get uh, inmates from the, uh, the the Shakopee prison, women's prison, that were sent there for you know. Usually, it was some depression related issue or something along those lines. In fact, on the very first day that I worked, the very first night. Uh, I worked a double shift from 3 until 11, and I spent most of my time with a woman who wasn't uh, an inmate playing chess with that person. And um, at 11 o'clock, when it was lights out, she proceeded to go hang herself in a room. That's terrible. It was awful. It was absolutely the most, I mean, it was one of the most traumatic experiences of my life. But what, what, when, you, when I heard Shakopee Women's Prison, you know, my... My relationship with that prison is this one person who was suffering sure. and who was, by all accounts, a lovely person. I mean, I spent eight hours with her, and it's just, you know, one is it just shows you that, you know, I love how you describe that they're human. Yeah. Um, you know, I hear a, a, an inmate from Shakopee is coming in, and I start to stress out. It's like, oh, God, what is this going to be like? And she was just as nice as could be. She just... I think she had a, a, an issue with uh, chemical dependency sure. and, uh, you know, made some bad choices. But, you know, it was just uh, it was really something. So we're going to change gears here oh, real sorry. quickly. You were Grand Order uh, last year. Yes. Uh, for Ethan Seberg. Yes. During a very unusual year to be Grand Order. Yes. So how, how many orations did you make during your, uh, your year as Grand Order? One. You made one. <laughs> So I was the Grand Order the year before, and I made one as well. You guys are underutilized. We, it, was, uh, it was a very easy gig yeah, yeah. for, uh, for that one We need to year. recycle you and get you back through their <laughs> Grand Order line again. Normally I would ask, what was the highlight of your, uh, your year as Grand Order? And clearly with the one oration, it was fantastic. You, you yeah. did a lovely job. You did a wonderful job. In fact, that's where I was like, God, that guy's got a great voice thank you i have a friend uh, named peter mccormick who you are the the spitting image audibly that of peter mccormick okay anyways um your your new role what do you have planned as the uh the ad for the metro east uh the metro east lodges provide any and all assistance we can let me let me tell you from my point of view what chris has got planned okay you know he Tries, he's trying to bring a voice of unity and cohesion yes. to Metro East and raise it up to where the level that it should be, both for um, ritual and day-to-day Masonic principles. And we're, we're, are, are we struggling with unity in the Metro East? We're struggling with unity in the whole fraternity. Um, 
various things tear at us in our daily lives, and I fear that a lot of Masons bring it into their Masonic lives. And I think that Chris will be a shining example of how not to do that. Well, in my years here, I would I would say you're one of the the rising stars among the. I don't know uh, what that means. <laughs> well, I'm telling you what it means. Um, you know, there are a handful of guys that you see that just have an energy about them that uh, people are drawn to. They have an enthusiasm. Uh, you know, just sort of the it factor. And uh, I would certainly say that you're one of those guys. Well, thank you. And uh, I'm looking forward to seeing what the uh, the future holds for you. Um, I know that Metro East is going to be in great hands. Yeah. Um, and who who was the AD before Chris? Roger Putnam. Where's your brother Roger Putnam? Well, that's all we have to say. You're going to be following Roger Putnam. So it's right. got to be everything is up from that. No, I'm teasing. <laughs> Love Roger. I'm golfing in your tournament, Roger. <laughs> yeah, um, again. But any final questions for your new uh, AD, Roger? Oh, he's um, going to put me on the spot. Here we go. No, actually not. I think that uh, the presentation that he just gave which I attended, obviously, um, because Helios is trying to be one of the stars in Metro East. Helios is coming up. Hard. Um, I'd like to know what Chris thinks in comparison to what I think of Chris, what Chris thinks of what he's bringing to Metro East. Uh, I, I would say energy. I mean, everybody kind of talks about that energy and, and caring. Yep. I think I think a lot of people think that Grand Lodge officers are there to just come and reprimand and yell at them and say, you didn't follow this role, do it right. And I don't I think that it gets misconstrued at some point in time. Absolutely. I mean, in all honesty, the only thing, myself and any of the other DRs in the Metro East and any other AD, we just want to help and provide that assistance. Yeah. And I don't think a lot of people, because we're not networking, because we're not, you know, that unified uh, group where districts kind of remain within their own districts and kind of talk to their own districts. Uh, you know, areas kind of remain in their own areas, don't really go out any other place. And to kind of cross-pollinate that is kind of really what we're looking to do so we can kind of share those Masonic experiences because we can't do this alone. Uh, lodges are struggling. There's fewer and fewer ritualists in masonry. So how do we solve that problem? Well, we, we help each other as a family. So I think that's what I'm bringing to the table. And I, I know that's going to be my, my message to everybody else. If you need help, find it. If you didn't ask, that's your fault. Right, right. And, you know, we do need that mentorship like we always talk about, and we need it now more than ever because there's less people to mentor. Well, and that and the world as a whole needs Freemasonry more today than it's needed oh, it for an truth. awfully long time. So we need shining examples. Yep. Difficult times, that's for sure. Well, thank you, Chris. I appreciate your time. Thank you, Roger. And, uh, And off we go.